Hello? That was a cool thing about the 80s, you know, like all those movies like were like that. Every one of my games, I try to do something brand new. Best time to get someone, man, when they're well fed and, and had a couple of wines. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Retro Project Podcast. My name is Steve and I am your host. Today is the first part of our chat with legendary programmer and co-founder of Activision, Mr. David Crane. David is going to be with us in just one moment. Until then, I would just like to let you know where you can find us. You can find us on the Twitter at Retro Project Pod. You can find us on Facebook at Retro Project Pod. And you can send us an email to the Retro Project Pod at gmail.com. You can also find all of our older episodes on iTunes. If you like what you hear, please do us a favour, head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. We really do appreciate every single review we get. It's the only currency that we have. Every episode is free. We don't do any advertising. The thing that keeps us going is hearing from our listeners. So leave us some feedback on Twitter. Head over and join the Facebook page. Leave us a review on iTunes. We're also a part of the Fantastic Universes family, so head over to www.fantasticuniverses.com. That's enough from me. Please welcome to the show, Mr. David Crane. Let's start at the beginning. Where are you from, man? Well, I was born in the Midwest of the United States in Indiana, very small town, 4,000 people. We had, we had one movie theater in the entire town. And uh, grew up there, but the day after I graduated from high school, I moved out to Los Angeles, which had four million people, (laughs) a thousand times the opportunities and the uh, activities. And how did how did that work for you? How did you settle in? Must have been a bit of a culture shock. Well, it was interesting in that you know everybody knows that Californians drive around a lot. Um, In my town, the nearest town to my little town in Indiana was eight miles away from um, town limits to town limits. And we would drive there less than once a year because it was just, it was just too far. You know, (laughs) the reality is it's that there was nothing there that we didn't already have one of. So it wasn't really so much that it was so far. It's just that you never left your little community. You had, you know, your local supplies and everything, so you didn't have to move on. Then in uh, when I moved to L.A. for just the summer before going to college, um, I had friends visit, and, you know, we would think nothing of driving 60 miles to go to a movie or 70 miles to go to a restaurant. So it's certainly different than uh, than how I grew up. You're in the small town, you, you moved to L.A., and then you mentioned you, you head for college. Now, this is where you did um, your Bachelor of, of Science in uh, Electrical Engineering and Technology. That's correct. Back then, because obviously technology and everything was very different back then to, to how it is now, I imagine there would have been a lot of hands-on back in that time. Well, there was. <clears throat> there was, certainly with the direction that I took. What was interesting is my family knew we were moving to Los Angeles. My dad was opening a uh, West Coast office for a company that he had been working for. So we knew we were going that way. 
And um, so when I made my college tour, I went to California and looked at all of the universities of California. And each one of them said, we have the best electronics program in the state of California. And come come take a tour. And we, we you know, I walked in and there was one little um, classroom and a closet. In the closet, they had a couple of pieces of electronic equipment. And I said, this is it. This is the best program in California. Um, and then a recruiter came to my high school and showed me the um, university I ended up choosing, which was DeVry Institute of Technology. Yeah. Uh, there, there's currently a DeVry University um, that was an outgrowth of that. But at the time, it was actually created by uh, the electronic industry. It was created by Bell & Howell, which was one of the big uh, companies in the electronics industry. Because they didn't have any way to, you know, make new engineers and they needed them. So they created this university. And the lab at this college had 60 individual stations, each with an oscilloscope and a power supply and, and other equipment, one right after the other in their lab. So it was far more hands-on, certainly, than anything that I found in any of the other universities. So um, I was really happy to see that because I had already been making computers and other things or very rudimentary computers using digital logic um, by the time I was ready to go to college. So I was very, very happy to see that. And it was just because a recruiter happened to come to our school and show us film and slides of this university. Was it just something which had just always been with you? Was there a trigger for it? Did you just happen to stumble across it? What was it that, that led you down that path? Yeah, I always had an interest. Um, you know, I started with chemistry sets and other science things, but uh, electronics was pretty new. And I had a, an instructor at high school who um, was also very interested in it. And we did a lot of extracurricular activity. And I ended up designing a tic-tac-toe playing computer. Um, you know, I took, got a television set for my birthday and the next day I had taken it apart. Um, so it, it was very much something that I, tended to do yeah so when you took the tv apart were you able to put it back together yeah i did um it was basically this is in a time before there was such a thing as a remote control so the reason reason i took it apart is i um i mounted the tv in a cabinet in my bedroom and then ran wires to have the tv tuner actually off board over closer to the bed so that i could lie in bed and turn and change the channel so that's that's awesome how old were you when you got that TV? I think that was my 13th birthday. That's not bad for a 13-year-old. Well, it's, it was just the kind of things that I did. <laughs> now, did you take anything apart when you were younger that you shouldn't have and and, and uh, had to do a, a panic run putting it back together before anyone got home? No, I could pretty much take things apart all the time. Um, I had one situation. We did have a, a garage door opener for the for the house. And um, in case I was going to be doing anything truly dangerous with my chemistry set, I would go down to the garage and remove the receiver from the um, garage door opener and take it up into my room and connect it to a light bulb so that when one of my parents got home and tried to open the garage door and press the button, it would flash a light inside my room to let me know that it's time to put all this stuff away. <laughs> And then go down and explain why the 
garage door opener wasn't working again, and I'd say, I'll look at it, see if I can fix it. <laughs> so you set up an early warning system. Yep. You mentioned that you went to LA. So you, you, you went to LA, but you didn't, you didn't settle there. You ended up heading to um, Arizona. Yeah, that was the case. Um, it was a four-year university, but it operated on the quarter system. And so a normal university would have three quarters taking nine months, and then you'd take three months off for the summer. Because they ran in a, on a quarter system, you could choose not to take the summers off and just run four quarters a year, which is what I did. Plus, I, I had advanced training just from uh, all of the stuff that I was doing, and I was able to take uh, challenge tests to advance into the, the course study. So I really only spent 33 months at the university there before I got my degree. And from there, Silicon Valley was the only place to go if you were going to be involved in electronics. So while the family settled in Los Angeles at that time, I was only there for three months, went to Phoenix, and then after just under three years, went up to uh, Silicon Valley, and I've been there since 1975. There seems to be a, a running trend with, with the guys who, who are around in your time who I've, who I've spoken to. None of you seem to want to do courses or any kind of learning in the the allotted time. It's almost seemed to be like a challenge for you guys to be able to work out the best way to do something that's already set within a within a system. I mean, what's the what's the shortest best way to get this done? Is that something that you carry around with you in general? I don't know about that. I mean, I would say that we all have very little patience for wasting our time, um, and if in a university, they are teaching to the least common denominator, so there's a lot of time wasted. Um, what was interesting in my case is, as I said, I got there and I saw that the course study was was beneath me, so I um, arranged to take challenge tests to advance into my level, and they, they only allow you to do that by skipping a single quarter. And that's what I did. But what's interesting about that is I, I did spend three months in the summer in L.A., which was fun. My friends would come. We went to Disneyland and, you know, all those things that you would do after getting out of high school. But when I challenged the first quarter successfully, it put me into a class with the overachievers who did not take the summer off after high school. Since it was possible, they could go right into the university right out of high school and the class that I was involved in, they had all done that. So I didn't do that because I wasn't really paying attention to even knowing it was possible at the time. But by challenging through the first quarter, I ended up in that group. And so this is a group of overachievers. And, you know, we all, you know, pushed each other from behind and uh, ended up accomplishing a lot with all of the instructors um, became just our buddies because they, they didn't have any trouble teaching us. And we were, you know, <laughs> we would already know what they were trying to say before they said it. So it made it easy for them to teach. And uh, so it was a, a real easy group. Oh, cool. So, yeah, so there would have been a lot of challenging each other, a lot of bit of friendly rivalry going on there, I imagine. There was that, yeah. And I had a room, my roommate was the class valedictorian, so that was easy too. The programming side of it, was programming also a part of the course that you took, or is that something that you picked up in the work environment? They did, in fact, have programming uh, taught at the university. Um, 
I experimented with those things well before they came up in the course study. And um, as an engineer, I was using microprocessors when they were just first invented. And microprocessor programming is very close to engineering. They're both done at very low level, you know, unlike, you know, C++ and programming languages of today. You really have to understand the hardware and at a low level. So um, that was something that I was doing anyway. It was very, um, very easy for me. At one point in the university, we had a uh, project where they were trying to teach us how to manage projects and manage people. And so for a, for a period of six months, we were assigned into teams and had to come up with some sort of a project to make. And I decided I would make my second generation of tic-tac-toe playing computer and uh, became the project leader and the project designer and designed all this. And there, there still weren't microprocessors at that point. So we did it all with individual discrete electronics, discrete integrated circuits. But, um, it's, it's very much like programming. Um, you know, the, the algorithms that I created for playing tic-tac-toe had to be implemented in circuitry, but uh, you still have to think logically and, create an algorithm and yeah, handle the logic flow and all those things that you do in programming. So it was very natural for me. You would have left uni um, around about the mid-70s? Yeah, 75. So you, so 70, so literally mid-70s. You're in Silicon Valley, so you're in, you're in California. What's the vibe of that place like in the, in the mid-70s? Is Silicon Valley like the place to be with all of the, the innovation and the technology that's starting to come through? Um, it was certainly... Um, a place where a lot of engineering was going on. It was not yet the hotbed of startups, um, but skills in engineering were were valued. So uh, you seldom stayed in a company for more than a couple of years because someone across the street would want you more badly than your current company and offer a you know twenty or thirty percent increase in salary just to change to the company across the street. So there was a lot of moving around and that sort of thing. Uh, we used to joke that um, you could take any three letters and add the word tech, and you'd find a company in Silicon Valley that's that name, Bob Tech, you know, <laughs> whatever, Ray Tech, yeah. Um, so yeah, there's certainly a lot of lot going on, a lot of companies. At some point here, you you land yourself in Atari. So what was it that that drew you to Atari? Did you head for them? Did they become aware of you? Well, the first job I took uh, in Silicon Valley was at National Semiconductor in one of their chip design labs. And I did that because I had a lot of theory from the university on how things you know, worked and in integrated circuits and that sort of thing. But I'd never actually worked with them hands-on. And I'm a hands-on kind of guy. And so I took a job in a field that I did not have any hands-on experience doing. And I did that just to broaden my experience and learn some things I didn't have experience doing. And and I took that job and I stayed there for about two years. And by the time that two years had come and gone, I was I was introducing microprocessor instrumentation and control into the design lab in ways that at one point my boss just told me, he said, this is really cool, but I have no idea what you're doing, you know? Um, so I knew I had outgrown that. 
And at that, at that very moment, um, I've been a tournament tennis player all my life. And, um, I was playing, I was living in an apartment complex in Sunnyvale that had tennis courts. I was only living there because it happened to be one of the few that had tennis courts. And, uh, Al Miller and I were doubles partners. We were playing doubles tournaments together. And, um, you know, we'd, we'd play tennis after work and we'd sit around and shoot the breeze and, and talk technology and that sort of thing. And one day he walked in and he said, here, read this. This is an ad I've just written for the newspaper that goes into tomorrow's newspaper. And it's Atari where he was working, trying to hire game programmers for their Atari 2600. And he had just asked me to read it, to proofread it. Um, but in reading it, I said, well, this sounds like it might be kind of fun. And so that night, I actually went back into National Semiconductor and on a microprocessor-based computer that I had built and hardwired from scratch and turned into a word processor, among other things, I wrote up a resume, printed it out, um, took it into an interview at 10 o'clock the next morning, and by 2 o'clock received a phone call that I'd been offered a job at, again, 25% higher salary than I was making at the time. So... Um, you know, less than 24 hours from reading the ad, I'd taken the job at Atari. It's amazing how things just fall into place sometimes. You know, you know this person, you're in this place, right place, right time, right person. Yeah, and, and Al Miller had um, recommended me to his boss by suggesting that they interview me. And I found out later that his boss said, wait a minute, I thought you were recommending him because you had worked with him before. Now I find out you only played tennis with the guy. But his his response was, yeah, I played tennis, but we talked technology for a couple hours after every, you know, match. And so I knew what he was capable of. And uh, Yeah, he, he knew you were able to hold your own easily. So you, you hit Atari, you settle into Atari. Now this is, you're in, a, in Atari in the in the fairly early days. You, you're starting to knock out a, a few games. I was going through your list just to refresh my memory this morning. I just kept going, I've got that one. I've got that one. You know, so we've got Out, Outlaw, Canyon Bomber and Slot Machine. And Outlaw was, was one of my favourite games growing up as a kid. I was a big fan of Westerns because my dad, um, you know, Growing up when he did, you know, it was all Bonanza, Gunsmoke, John Wayne, you know, Lee Marvin. It was one of the um, one of the only video games he would actually play because he actually loved the whole cowboy concept of it. Now, I spoke to um, Warren Robinette and he was nice enough. He's, he's got a book called Making, Making the Dragon. And he actually credits you in the book um, as being the person who um, basically taught him that what he was doing with the competition, what he needed to do was be better than the than the other people in the room if he was making something. If he wanted to be better, he had to see the competition around him rather than just rest on his laurels. Um, do you remember that kind of uh, environment, that kind of atmosphere at Atari, or was it a different kind of, a different kind of thing for you? Well, it was interesting with Atari... Um, First of all, on Outlaw, you know, that that's a rare thing these days. It's a two-player game. When you said you played Outlaw, I said, well, he must have been playing with his dad because you got to have somebody to play with. <laughs> but Atari created yeah. the Atari 2600 in order to be able to sell home versions of their arcade games. That was their prior primary goal. And they made the hardware capable of playing at least two of their existing arcade games. One of them was Tank, 
and the other was Pong. And um, the hardware was, you know, kind of universal too. So you could do other things, obviously, other than Tank and Pong, but that was the main goal. So their, um, their desire was for us to look at their arcade games and figure out how to make home versions of their arcade games. And, um, you know, we would tend to do that. I did Canyon Bomber and Depth Charge. I mean, my claim to fame there is I put two $3,000 arcade games, both Canyon Bomber and Depth Charge, into a single $30 um, Atari 2600 game, at least versions of it. So I was proud of that. But there are times that you would look and see that there were no arcade games that you could really do well on the Atari 2600, and so you had to come up with something original. I uh, made slot machine because my mother was a little lady, liked to play machines, and by giving her one that she could play at home, she, I kept her at home, you know? Um, yep. <laughs> yeah. So she was very happy to do that. And uh, anyway, so, you know, we look at these other games and try to figure out cool things to do with the Atari that weren't necessarily arcade games. So that was the main goal, is what kind of cool thing can we do with the Atari. In many cases, things that were not even envisioned by the chip designers who put the chips in the game, in the machine, um, what kind of cool things could we come up with? And as a result, at least over time, there was the competition really with your own work. Every time you were coming up with something new, you knew it just had to be better than the last thing you did or else you're on a downward spiral and who would, who would enjoy that? So the most, most of the competition was figuring out some cool new way to use the hardware that was in the 2600 in order to make games. There were definite limitations with the system itself that you guys had to, you guys had to get around, didn't you? Like there were certain um, restrictions that were, were placed on what you could actually do. Yeah, only those of us who actually did it really understand how restricted it was. And a few people in the homebrew field now are starting to learn because they want to try it out and see. But it was extremely restrictive. But it was like a puzzle for us, is trying to figure out ways to do things differently. Yep. I had one, one time I was in the lab at Atari, and I was working on something that became it became the ability to put more than four digits of score in a game. Um, if you remember combat, it had left player had two digits and the right player had two digits. And that was, that was the extent of it. And I had come up with a way to do six high resolution digits that could be used as score and other things. And the chip designer of the chip in the, in the console was walking through the lab and I felt somebody standing behind me. I looked around Turned around, he was just shaking his head, and I said, what's up, Jay? And he said, I had no idea the chip I designed could do what you're doing there. So uh, it was all trying to figure out new ways to use the hardware. So was that something you were deliberately trying to do, or is it something that kind of spun out of, of something else, almost like a, a happy accident? Almost universally, it was something I was trying to do. Um, in other words, I would say, I want to expand the universe of gaming. I want to figure out some way to make something that couldn't be done yesterday and can be done today because of a techno technological improvement I've figured out. And I went that direction. And then quite often, once I was successful, I looked at that and said, okay, now that that's in my toolbox, what kind of a game can I make? 
So the game idea quite often came about because of a new trick, a tricky way of using the hardware. There's an expression which uh, which I always go by. Uh, Win if you can, lose if you must, but always, always cheat. Yeah, okay. And, uh, and I've always taken that as if you win, you win. If you lose, you lose. But always try and, and find a different solution. The cheat part of it is, well, don't let you tell anyone that it can or it can't be done until you've tried it for yourself. Now, it sounds like that's a lot of what you were doing. It wasn't the chip designers would say, this is what it can do, and then you'd take it upon yourself to prove them wrong. Yes, I would have to admit that that was so much a part of my makeup that there were times that people I was working with would like nudge each other and say, tell Dave it can't be done and he'll do it, you know. <laughs> so set the challenge forward to you. That's right. You're, you're at Atari now. During during this time, there's the, of course, there's the now famous story where you guys were starting to become disgruntled, not just with the, the royalty schemes that had been set up at Atari, but also the fact that you guys were the creative power behind these games that were coming out and that people had in their in their lounge rooms, but nobody knew your name. Nobody knew who it was who created these games that they were playing every single day. I mean, I used to play the Atari every single day. And then um, Activision is formed. What were, the, what were the first seeds of you guys saying, okay, we need to go and do something on our own because it's not working here for us anymore? Yeah, Atari was a nice place to work. Uh, for a while, um, the sale to Warner Communications happened before I joined, but some of those things take a long time to really develop. And Nolan Bushnell was still working there um, when I started, but booted out by by Warner, and so they lost uh, creative leadership at the top. And you know that trickled down and changed the work environment, so that it wasn't as fun. It wasn't as creative. And um, as has been said many times before, Atari, you know, began to just think of video games as widgets and not creative technological products. And uh, then the people in the lab who made them were just widget makers, and uh, we weren't comfortable with that. I mean, the the financial impetus um, was very simple. They... Um, there were four of us who worked together closely and had lunch together and such. And they circulated a memo that showed that without saying how many, how, how much money they had made on Atari cartridges, these games on this list made 60% of the total sales. And those games were all done by just the four of us. And it was an open secret that, in the previous year, they had done $100 million in cartridge sales. So I said, wait a minute, making $20,000 a year as a salary and getting no recognition, we made the company $60 million. Let's go talk to the president about that. And that's when the president told us we were no more important to the product than the guys on the assembly line who put them together. And that was certainly the final straw. So <laughs> I can, I can, because you're talking about how difficult this, this system is to program for as well. So it's not like you guys were simply resting on your laurels and saying, you know, oh, this is a, this is a breeze. Every game that you, you made had to be created from scratch. There were no direct ports or anything at that stage. You guys, even if it was an existing arcade game, were you were almost redesigning the game because you had to figure out how to make it fit on a 2600 card. Exactly. Now, you mentioned before that, you know, in Silicon Valley, you've got the joke where you can put three letters and tech in front of anything but you guys you guys didn't do that 
Where did the name Activision <laughs> actually come from? Like, why wasn't it, you know, Bob Tech or Larry Tech or Dave Tech? You know, how did Activision come to be? Um, yeah, it was almost Bob Tech, except we already had a Bob. Um, and and in fact, it was it was even funnier than that. The other thing about these kinds of company names is you can almost take three technical terms and put them in a random sequence and, you know, make a company name. So we did that. We sat down with a, a computer and entered a whole bunch of technical names and had it spit them out in random order, three at a time. And then we read down the page and we, we initially began with graphic software engineering. And that, that was the company name. But at that point, it was just, if we, we thought about we might just form a consulting company called Graphic Software Engineering and then just contract back to Atari. Because if we contracted back, we'd be able to set our prices, we'd be able to set the terms and make sure we were getting credit and all those kinds of things. And we went to an attorney and we asked him, should we be a partnership or do we need to go to the trouble of creating a corporation? And he said, simple answer to that is if all you want to do is consult back to Atari, you can be a corporation called Graphic Software Engineering. But if you really want to manufacture and publish games, which was the other idea we're thinking about, largely Cal Miller was the strongest proponent of that. Um, if you're going to do that, you're going to need to incorporate, you're going to need business people, you're going to need venture capital, you're going to need all these things. Um, and I can help you with that too. And then he said, in fact, a friend of mine, by the name of Jim Levy, is currently working with a venture capital firm and about to raise money to do something similar to what you're doing. You guys ought to meet. And so we met with Jim Levy at his house and talked about it. And it took you know a month of meetings to really come together. But we ended up forming a corporation. <laughs> and again, the corporation we incorporated under the term vsync which is the name of one of the the wires on the uh, tia chip inside the um the atari 2600 it's also a tech a television term vertical sync vsync and so we were literally we were vsync inc for one day and um then spent a lot of time just brainstorming and I would have to say that, you know, I don't know, if you ever brainstormed a name for something, it's it's awful. I mean, you come up with hundreds of ideas, and by the time you've gone through a few hours of that, nothing sounds good at all. They all sound bad. Uh, and uh, anyway, so Jim yeah, Levy, yeah. who became our CEO, uh, he was the one who championed the idea of being active. And so active television was contracted into Activision. And uh, shortly thereafter, we changed the name to Activision. And that is where we leave the first part of our chat with David Crane. In the next episode, we go into a full deep dive into some of David's most famous games, including Pitfall, Ghostbusters, and a lot, lot more. So make sure that you subscribe to us. I would just like to let you know where you can find us. You can find us on the Twitter at Retro Project Pod. You can find us on Facebook at Retro Project Pod. You can find us at Fantastic Universes at www.fantasticuniverses.com. And you can also send us an email 
to the retro project pod at gmail.com until next time thank you for listening and this has been the retro project podcast <laughs>